Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale February 23rd, 2022. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. I'm Jasmine Estrada. And I'm Brad Barton. Not a dream, not a hoax, not an imaginary tale. After two years of being slandered in the final 45 seconds of every episode of the pull list, it is my honor to return to the big kids table. I'm yeah. so excited. Slandered? We don't slander. We're just, you know, we speak the truth. It's, I know. It's uh, it's absurd, but it's with love. Uh, and I adore every single moment of it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. This is the official Marvel podcast of Marvel Comics. We're going to talk about all the brand new books that are out this week. We're going to give out some awards, give out our picks, tell you what's hitting Marvel Unlimited, both in the uh, the regular service and Infinity Comics, what collections are out this week. Then we're going to get into a big honkin' reading club where we pull a book from Marvel Unlimited and talk about it with a guest. Jasmine, who's the guest on the show today? This week, we're talking to Dan Casey about Superior Foes of Spider-Man. I'm really excited. If you're not familiar with Dan Casey, he's one of the hosts over at Nerds.com. Yeah. Before we get into all that, before we get into our books, even for those who do listen to the full show, uh, uh, you, you've heard us mention, talk about build the legend that is Brad Barton. Yeah. Uh, but for those who maybe don't know anything about you, who are you? What do you do? Who's your father? What does he do? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, by day, I'm the senior manager of audio production and development for Marvel, which means that I listen to all of the amazing podcasts that you beautiful people put out and go through and say, uh, maybe let's not say this, uh, but also do my best to uh, help uh, the the wheels of progress move forward and make the best shows we can, both for Polist and This Week in Marvel and Women of Marvel and Voices, as well as all the fiction and premium stuff that we're doing with Sirius XM. We are a busy department, you guys, uh, mm. but um, putting out some cool stuff. So it's all good. You've been reading comics for like three or four years, I'd imagine. Three or four years. That's years? Right. I thought it was like months. We just got you on. All right. Books. It's decades, people. It's decades. <laughs> Let's just get into it. Yep, I've been reading since, oh my lord. Um, I started reading actually with Marvel's Star Wars way back in the day, because I'm a big old Star Wars nerd, which probably makes my first purchase the very late 70s or early 80s. Oh, geez, I threw out my back just saying that statement. <laughs> yeah, so I've been uh, I've been reading a really long time. Brad, you're going to bring a lot of expertise and insight into the world of Marvel Comics as we dive into our books this week. We've got some great picks, uh, a ton of books. There's almost 20 issues to talk about this week. So let's not belabor the point. Let's get right into things. I'm going to go first with my first pick of the week, which is Strange Academy number 16. And I will say that uh, I pick this before Jasmine could pick this. But we both say it is our our favorite. It is so good. It's incredible. It is written by Scotty Young with art by Umberto Ramos, colors by Edgar Delgado, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. If you needed any proof to say that Umberto Ramos is one of the greatest Marvel comics artists of all time, not that you should need any proof at this point in his career, but this could be one of those issues where you just throw it down at someone and say, look at this and tell me this isn't a master just showing off. This is Umberto uh, and with Edgar, because you got to give major credit to the colors and to the texture and the feel of this entire book that Edgar brings to Umberto's work. The together they are 
a force to be reckoned with. In this story, it is a heartbreaker. There's a bunch of emotional beats for the kids. If you don't know Strange Academy, it's where the best and brightest young sorcerers are trained by the greatest magic users in the realm. So you get a lot of fun drama, school stuff, kids being kids, romance, you get action, you get kids making bad decisions, you get teacher stuff. You All get the bad decisions. So many bad decisions. <laughs> uh, uh, this issue uh, kind of centers around the uh, the big school dance and preparations going into the dance, the dynamics of who wants to ask who and all that stuff. But on top of that, you are dealing with the cost of actually running this school and what it means to magic. Because it, we've we've established over the last 10 years or so really firmly that magic has a cost in the Marvel Universe. And here... There's a really big cost, and uh, it brings a, a page where we see uh, Doctor Voodoo in one panel, just say "Oh my," and then the next a giant panel of what he's looking at, and it's it will break you, and it is everything you want out of a sort of YA level book set in a school, but also mature enough that you know adults will read it, good enough that I can't wait for my daughter to read it. it is it is kind of like a, a near perfect book for me. Oh yeah. Also just want to add on to that. It's the first appearance of Eva at Strange Academy from Reptile, uh, oh, yeah. which got me really excited because she's my little bruja. And like, I mean, I can't wait to see more. Right Thank in you. time for the dance. Oh, I know. Oh man, this book is so good. Uh, for my pick, I'm going with Electra Black, White and Blood number two. Uh, there are three stories in this issue with a color palette throughout that is, you guessed it, limited to black, white and red. So let's talk about story number one, shouting out the creative team. It's cut and run. That's writer Peter David and penciler Greg Land. That's the symbiote Spider-Man team for those mm -hmm. keeping score at home. Uh, and it's possible... Uh, what I'm about to point out is also thanks in part to colorist Frank Darmada. Two pages of a fight scene in this story has so much blood spatter and droplets <laughs> in the air. It looks like confetti, but it's blood. It's like a ticker tape parade with colorful bits floating everywhere, but those bits are blood, right? But it's so precise in this book and like every droplet seems to be so carefully placed. Like, I guess that's what happens. <laughs> when, uh, when there's that much, when the, <laughs> those many blades flying through the air. The uh, the second story in the book is written by Al Ewing with art by Rod Reese, who, as he does in the pages of New Mutants, makes choices that almost appear to be like multimedia art sometimes, meaning nothing seems out of place, like they don't get in each other's way, but it seems like he's using different art styles in the same story. So now we're going to go into my, my old school comics uh, love. Often... With Rod Reese, this results in comparisons between Rod Reese to artist Bill Sienkiewicz's art, who blew everyone's minds on New Mutants in the mid-80s, which leads me to an even more natural comparison, which would be Sienkiewicz's art on the Elektra Assassin limited yes. series in the I 80s, love that series. Right? Yeah. So, so that series and this story aren't identical by any stretch, but I feel like there's similar storytelling DNA, and there's a somewhat similar approach to art, and the fact that in both stories, then and now, Electra is a ghost. She is a rumor. And if you manage to figure out that she exists, you're probably already dead. Uh, this is just such a cool uh, short story. I totally, totally dug it. Story number three in this book is written and illustrated by Greg Smallwood. Electra travels to a small Japanese village to help take down a monster. This is a wordless tale, no dialogue at all. 
and it is tremendous. Also, the environmental work is really superb, I thought, in this story. The Japanese landscapes, the lighting, the silhouettes of the buildings against a gray sky. You can feel the time of day and the wetness in the air. It is so well done. Okay, my pick this week is Silk Number Two, which is written by Emily Kim and art by Takeshi Miyazawa. Colors by Ian Herring and lettered by VCs Ariana Mayer. In this issue, Cindy Moon is currently trying to solve this issue of influencers that are growing old overnight. Reverse Benjamin buttoning? Yes, reverse <laughs> Benjamin buttoning. Um, but at the same time, like Silk is still trying to adapt to, you know, normal life. Uh, the book starts with her trying to find a new hobby. And like as the beats of the story continue, you see her in different like environments where she's trying to learn a new hobby, whether it's coding, whether it's pottery making. At one point, she gets a text from her friend, Luna Snow, to come to one of her shows. And so she gets two tickets. Uh, and I love that there's like a little small romance story budding here. She meets someone, she invites them to the show. They have a really cute meet cute in a classroom. And the way that that story plays out feels very reminiscent of like early Peter Parker, where he would go out with someone and just like leave them hanging because he has to go run off and like, you know, play superhero. So it's a lot of that mixed into it, as well as this like team up with Luna Snow um, in this book, which is awesome. Jasmine, you know what I really like about that scene that you just pointed out, the meet cute, that it is a page that has five panels and only four dialogue balloons, and it still communicates so much emotionally, right? There's nervous confidence, there's surprise, uncertainty, the disappointment, some cautious optimism, maybe it's going to go well. Like there could be zero dialogue and we'd still completely understand what was going on. Uh, it, totally. It's really, really nicely done. Book rules. So good, so good. Oh yeah, <laughs> so really good. It definitely run. does. All right, those were our picks for this week. Now to talk about the rest of the books. But before we do that, I need to list off some potential award names, guys. Mm. Uh, you ready for this? Where, did these, I, some good where do these potential names come from, Jasmine? What, what does this mean? What's happening here? All of these potential names have been pulled from our books this week. Uh, whether it's a, it's a scene or a piece of dialogue, usually a piece of dialogue that I thought was just really funny and or weird out of context. If you figure out where the actual award name came from, the one that we decide on, you can send us an email at pullist at marvel.com or tweet at us using the hashtag Marvel's Pullist. But all right, you guys ready for these names? Yes, hit us. Mm -hmm. All right, so first one is the You Can't Feed a Family with Monuments to the Past Award. Yes, you can. Yeah. Have you heard of the Big Mac? That's a monument to America's past is it? without question. I, mm, we have the Doom Carries No Napkins Award. I mean, come on. Which I mean, Strong like. Strong contender. Yeah, I love so that. Good. I mean, he has a big cape. Why does he need napkins? Uh, we have the Darkness Helps My Poor Shrink Award and the Get Off Me, You Demented My Little Pony Award. Wow. Hmm. Uh, I know my vote, but. Uh... Ryan? Uh, man. Look, I. Ugh. Everything comes back to doom. So I, my vote is for the doom carries no napkins. Away. That's the correct answer. That's a good one. I like that one a lot. So it will right. always be doom. Doom carries no napkins award. Very good. We'll be giving that award to uh, something about each of the comics that we're talking about because we have more comics to share with you this week, including amazing Spider-Man number 90. Um, you know what? I'm going to give my doom carries no napkin award to the final page of the issue which is sort of a cop-out because i'm not going to tell everybody what the final page is but it feels like it's a moment and a scene and a feeling 
that we've been waiting for for the last 15 plus issues. I don't even know how many issues really we put out of Amazing Spider-Man because the dot bays come out here and there. And so it could have been 70 issues since issue number 75. But the last bit of this is pure Mark Bagley, just like six shooters out going, woohoo, yeehaw, I'm Mark Bagley, woohoo, which is my impression of Mark Bagley. Mark, please, no questions, please. Nailed it. <laughs> Absolutely nailed it. Speaking of Spider-Man, let's move on to Ben Riley, Spider-Man number two. So it's written by J.M. DeMattius, which is just so exciting because, you know, in, in this, we're actually touching on plot elements that go back to some classic moments in Spider-Clone stories, including some of J.M.'s own work on Spectacular Spider-Man in the mid-90s. I'm going to give the Doom Carries No Napkins Award to uh, the power of therapy that's going on in this mm. book at times. Um, a lot of emotional healing as uh, we join Ben Riley in a period of his life um, when we are deep into the clone saga. He believes that he is the true Spider-Man and Peter Parker was the clone and he's unpacking a lot around that. So overall, there's also some nice work in this book about loneliness and how trying to kindle new friendships and the challenge of vulnerability and putting yourself out there can be harder than battling a supervillain. And some damn good David Baldion art. Whew. That too, yeah. Whew, whew. All right, we've got Black Widow issue number 14 out this week. Uh, I feel like it's been years since we got an issue of Black Widow, even though it's probably only been a month. I crave issues of Black Widow. I had to stop myself from picking this issue of Black Widow because every issue of Black Widow should be on your pull list, dear listeners. It is Natasha versus the Living Blade. The first panel of this issue is Natasha face-to-face -face with the Living Blade, uh, an enemy that actually scares the black widow and the caption boxes read the living blade i i can't beat him boom and then you're off and running there's great stuff with the winter soldier with yelena with the rest of black widow's crew uh wonderful cast it's fun it's got big amazing action scenes and it has a last page again i'm giving my doom carries no napkins award to the last page because I was reading this in an evening on the couch next to my wife and I went, oh, and uh, my wife, Elizabeth turned to me. She goes, what's wrong? What's wrong? Is, did something happen at work? I was like, oh, no, I'm reading a comic book. And she goes, oh, thank God. I'm like, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, ah. And she's like, and I was like, do you want to see it? And she was like, yes. And I showed it to her. She goes, oh, <laughs> that is like the only appropriate response for that page i yeah, yeah. pretty much there, there's no way to not have an audible reaction to the final nope. page no uh, and again could have been one of our picks but i had to pull myself back because we picked black widow many times it's so good mm -hmm. all right i'm jumping in on the next one because it was another one of my favorites that could have been a pick of the week for me this week that is captain marvel number 36 this is the last chapter of the Last of the Marvels arc that Kelly Thompson has been writing. We get the Avengers assisting Carol Danvers on this. We get the Guardians of the Galaxy. We get a surprise appearance by a character that I didn't see coming, but I was really excited to see, uh, as well as more binary action. If you've been keeping up with this, there's a new power that allowed Captain Marvel to do something new. We get to see more of that and see how this character or being you know, will continue to evolve or continue to play in Captain Marvel's life. There's some some big stuff happening. Big love on on binary. Binary's getting a big spotlight soon. 
I'm so pumped. So, I, I love yeah. Binary. I just bought her Marvel Legend action figure. Of course. Because I was did. like, I of need course. that figure. She's so yep. cool. Of course she did. So with all that said, my Doom Carries No Napkin Award will go to Binary. All right. Let's keep it rolling with Carnage Forever, number one. I'm going to tell you this straight up, everybody. I am not a big Carnage guy, but this book was creepy. In terms of horror comics, this nailed it. Uh, you've got the Carnage symbiote on its own, but it's got like residual psychic nastiness from Cletus Cassidy, even if Cletus isn't there. And that just makes it awful. And it's, it's like bad scene. Everyone's fault. Everything is terrible. There's awful stuff, murder, mayhem, and, and creepiness. I think I will give my doom carries no napkins award to some of the sound effects in here because I was going through and there's a scene, uh, where a character is, um, hearing stuff going on in another area the sound effects were crack, rock, warp. And I was like, oh, and then it's crack, pop, shrip. And it's like some nasty, really gruesome, it felt very visceral and, and, and real sound effects. All right, moving right along to Dark Ages number five, written by Tom Taylor. So this is the second to last chapter in the alternate universe story of a Marvel universe with virtually zero electricity. The horror! Where will we charge our iPhones? Uh, so our steam-powered heroes have made it to Europe to take the fight to evil mastermind apocalypse. Here are three highlights from this book. All right, these are my big takeaways. One, Peter Parker gets parenting advice from Dr. Doom. I love that. Number two, a gigantic <laughs> Ant-Man riding Fin Fang Foom just along the coastline. You know, no as big, one does. As casually. one does, right, exactly. Number three, devil dinosaur attending a funeral. Very respectful, Devil Dinosaur. Thank you for coming. Um, you know, I know that we we pick a quote at the top of the show in order to uh, put together the award, but I did love the moment where Laura Kinney, after a particularly gruesome fight, says, why focus on the bits that have spilled out of me when I can see my body is half full? Always an optimist, <laughs> Laura Kinney. Um, I originally had that as, as a potential name, but I thought it was <laughs> a little too too much. It's a, it is a little much. It's a little gruesome. I wouldn't want to give out that award, but uh, <laughs> I, I did laugh out loud darkly while reading it. Um, ultimately, I'm going to give my Doom Carries No Napkins award to the unspoken moral, probably of this whole series, which is invest now in wind power, everyone. Embrace it so we don't find ourselves in this situation. All right, up next is Devil's Reign, Villains for Hire, number two. Uh, we saw at the end of the first issue that John Walker, aka U.S. Agent, strolls on into a meeting with the Thunderbolts and Kingpin, and he's like, Hi, I'm here to be a part of your Thunderbolt, <laughs> and uh, which is my John Walker impression. Thank you very much. Perfect. You know Perfect. that. Yeah, I appreciate that. What I do want to give my Doom Carries No Napkins award to are the uh, signs that are littered throughout a crowd. Wilson Fisk and the Thunderbolts are holding a big sort of like event, uh, what looks like on Central Park lawn. And the signs that the people are holding are tremendous. They include uh, Tisk Tisk Fisk, yeah. <laughs> which I just love. Uh, no risk with Fisk, which is good. But my favorite one, Fist or Fisk, which I leave there without comment but as a <laughs> someone who grew up uh going to lots of professional wrestling events during the heyday of the 1990s when every second person had a giant very somewhat or occasionally witty sign 
this scratch an itch I didn't know I had. Amazing. That's pretty fantastic. Moving right along, rev those engines, y'all, because it's Ghost Rider number one. Oh, man. If you are mourning the loss of Immortal Hulk in the category of looking for new nightmares, <laughs> please ask your doctor if Ghost Rider number one is right for you. <laughs> All right. And here's here's why. Because it is this book is wants to, or at least is trying to, pick up the baton in regards to here's some everyday banality and dread at the same time. Here's a protagonist who has been through some stuff and knows that he is not okay. Is he crazy? Is the world crazy? And do you want body horror? Oh yes. So you much may body, have horror. Your body horror. Oh my God. There are yeah. moments of sudden shocking grotesquerie that have stayed with me since I, I read this book. So in brief, we're joining Johnny Blaze, original ghostwriter, suburban dad, and husband. What? Still likes riding motorcycles, had a nasty accident riding, and now has an ugly scar behind his ear. Please don't poke at it. Oh, God. It's so Please gross. It. Uh, right? So so he's trying to determine if, if he is imagining things, if the world is going insane. And I will admit, I did not know who wrote this at first so the credits page doesn't come until the very end and i legitimately did not peek i did not know who the writer was so whose mind is riddled with enough twisted madness to write this story then i hit the credits learned it was benjamin percy writer of wolverine x-force and some great fiction podcasts including marvel's wastelander Starlord. downloaded today <laughs> and it all made sense of course right so uh you know, I hope that the rest of the creative team has someone to talk to after what Ben Percy put them through on this book because they're going to need some therapy. And I guess I would give the Doom Carries No Napkins award to the fact that this book needs some napkins because, oh God, it, it needs is some gross napkins. and there's a lot to clean up. Yes. It, but like there are so many creatures and things in here where if you touched it with a napkin, then the paper would get stuck to the, Ew, to the yeah. like, warm, sticky flesh. And then you'd be like pulling off pieces of tissue. It's really gross. Yeah. Y'all. It really, really is. gross. It really yeah. is. All right. Up next is Iron Man number 17, which uh, if you want to see Tony Stark eating pizza, then this is the book for you. <laughs> if you want to see some nasty stuff happen to good people, this is a book for you. Uh, I will give my Doom Carries No Napkins award to two of my favorite characters looking on as Tony Stark and Patsy Walker having a conversation. One of them says, I can hear her from up here. The other one says, alas, the pizza party has ended. I am giving my Doom Carries No Napkin award to the line, alas, the pizza party has ended because I need to use that more often. I love it so much. There's some wild stuff. There's like a six page sequence in here when I was like, oh, Oh, oh man, it's it's a bonkers book. All right, next up we have Miles Morales Spider-Man number thirty-five. This issue has been a long time coming. I've been waiting for some closure on the Assessor story for a minute, and this issue provides some of that closure. We finally get to understand who the Assessor is, what's going on, where they come from, as well as a interesting reveal at the end of this book that Miles and Schiff both uncover. Yeah, we, we, we get a, a hint. Um, we know, I think, next week is the first of our What If Miles Morales books. We're getting into the Miles-verse. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we're calling it that, but I'm calling it that. 
which is real fun. And I love alternate reality stuff. Same. And we're digging into some alternate reality stuff with Ms. Marvel Beyond the Limit number three. Here we get to learn, um, you know, the first issue we saw, Ms. Marvel glimpsed some other versions of herself and digging into that. And she's been tracking down this other Ms. Marvel that's been doing stuff, wearing her costume, looking like her. So we really dig into who that character is, where they come from, what they're doing, what they're feeling. But it is a roller coaster ride across the the entire book. Um, I love that in this book, uh, Kamala wants to eat all the time. She's like constantly hungry because of her powers, which I'm like, yeah, I feel you. I get it. I don't even have powers, but I want to go back to Ms. Marvel and give my Doom Carries No Napkins award to uh, the fact that this book includes one of our favorites, Nadia Pym, aka The Wasp. Um, she shows up in here and we haven't seen her in a little while and we even get a little serving agent. looks too. Yeah. And, uh, we see a little agents of girl action in the background. It is terrific to see her show up. All right. Moving right along. Phoenix song echo number five. Maya Lopez is having a moment. It is the final issue of this mini series. And I find it sort of interesting that the book is titled ready. I'm going deep on this one guys. So bear with me here. This book is titled Phoenix song echo with Phoenix song in the logo as a very large prominent part of the logo and Echo a little bit smaller. And I call that out because in this issue, at least is very much about Echo discovering herself or rediscovering herself after taking on the Phoenix Force. As the book talks about, she's being chased down by adversaries, literally the villain known as the adversary, because they want the power of the Phoenix, but consider Echo to be an afterthought. Her power is a commodity, but the person is an afterthought. But when Echo puts it all together, that she, Maya, has as much value, if not more than her gifts, the Phoenix Force, then that's the moment she becomes more confident, a more empowered person. Even superheroes suffer from imposter syndrome. Probably a lesson we'd all benefit from following. Join us next time on Superhero Therapy Hour. which means I think this is the second time on this show that I'm giving the Doom Carries No Napkins Award to the Power of Therapy. I'm doing some work on myself, y'all. Is it showing? Um, and if, Which is good. It's a big week it for is a therapy. Big week yeah, for therapy. it's important. And if that's all too goopy for you, fair listener, did I mention that Native American tech genius Forge makes an appearance? And virtually this yeah, whole issue yeah, yeah, takes yeah. place in an afterlife adjacent realm called the White Hot Room. So it's got that going for it, too. Look. Forge rules. Everybody else drools. Get in <laughs> on this Forge action. Next up is Shang-Chi number nine. This one could have also been a pick of mine this week, but in this issue, we are continuing where we left off in the last issue where we're learning more about Shang-Chi's backstory. We see Shang-Chi fighting a lot of these monsters summoned by his grandfather. And the way that Shang-Chi manages to get out of this fight or at least win this fight is very creative like i did not expect it even when it was happening in a couple panels i was like i don't understand why shang chi is doing this but the solution to fighting these monsters and defeating them is chef's kiss but we get to see a lot of action a lot more of the mythology built out which i'm enjoying because i love to see where this is heading um and 10 rings are coming into play so a lot more of the talo history is still being forged haha more forge <laughs> Stuck the landing. Uh, Yeah. Uh, All right. Our penultimate book this week is Silver Surfer Rebirth number two. This is like a drug for me. This is something like, and I've been off this drug for years. (laughs) I haven't seen this drug in a long time. I haven't smelt it, but like every sense lights up when I open 
this book. I and I've really never done drugs, so I'm just kind of like <laughs> <laughs> going off of, <laughs> going off assumptions here. Just smelling those uh, freshly printed comics. <laughs> you know? Uh but like I this is this is my jam, y'all. I was 10 years old when I read Infinity Gauntlet number six, and it like turned my brain on in ways that I never knew were possible. And so I dug into all the Silver Surfer issues of the time. I dug into all the cosmic stuff and Ron Lim's pencils doing Silver Surfer, Thanos, uh, and like the weirder cosmic parts of the Marvel Universe just is everything I love. It is a beautiful book. Israel Silva coloring uh, Ron Lim is something very, very special. Um, I get it. This book may not be for everyone, but if you have any any love of Infinity Gauntlet era, Silver Surfer, Thanos action, you gotta get this book. It's so good. Uh, you see Surfer and Thanos teaming up for reasons you start to dig into in this book. And also, it has a character show up at the end of this who mm-hmm. is very much in the zeitgeist right now for so us. Uh, it's a character I have no real connection to, but because of an appearance that they make next week, I'm like, oh, this character is pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool. I'm into it. I will give my uh, Doom Carries No Napkins award to a double page spread two single page splashes and one double page sort of like regular it's not a a full like single spread but it's it goes over two pages there's just beautiful beautiful art throughout this man it is a gorgeous book can we briefly touch on thanos's space throne by the way and and the garage i i knew you were gonna say (laughs) it. it's amazing it's it was so so funny when it when it came in we go back to the farm y'all we do go back we go back to thanos's farm which is a legit thing that appeared first in infinity gauntlet number six it is very special and i love that on that farm under a field of wheat is the garage door where he hides the space throne how do you open that door by snapping of course Yes, he he rocked that throne for a long time. And of course, it's like your favorite car. It's like, yeah, it doesn't run as well as it used to, but like, I got to keep it. I got to find a place for it. Oh, in my farm under the garage. Boom. Do you think he keeps the copter down there as well? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the copter is sort of, it's, that's a, that's a just for him vehicle. Okay. Okay. So like he keeps that just for when he's. By himself not when he's like that's not for fighting that's for like leisurely you know a sunday drive yeah yes yes very much a sunday drive vehicle and that brings us to our final book of the week it's x deaths of wolverine number three written by benjamin percy once again so with this issue we are halfway through the 10 lives x deaths of wolverine epic told in weekly alternating series there's no doubt the scale and stakes are gigantic uh, we've got Omega Wolverine, who appears to be from the future and is coated in some kind of phalanx techno-organic material, hell-bent on taking down Moira McTaggart. She's on the run, working with a technology magnate to bring down mutant kind. It's very timey-wimey, this book. Um, some mm-hmm. shades of Terminator, some shades of other um, uh, cross-dimensional time travel stories, uh, which is really cool. But ultimately, I'm giving my doom carries no napkins award to the fact that this book holds not one bonus wolverine laura kinney x23 not two bonus wolverines gabby kinney honey badger but also sort of a bonus third wolverine it's docking the whole family's together oh you like gotta like just like fast and the furious this book is 
all about family. It's all about family. But like, there's a moment there that's so sweet, and like, I was like, man, give me a Wolverine family book right friggin' I, now. Yes. Yes, please. Right now. It is honestly one of the most engaging parts of of the entire book. I I really do sort of love that dynamic, but it's, you know, there's no question that Ben Percy is going big. He's unfolding a big, big story here. So Mm -hmm. four more weeks to go, y'all. Yeah. Oof. Wow. Wow. It's happening so fast. Oof. You know what else happens fast? The releases of Infinity Comics only on Marvel Unlimited this week. We've got X-Men Unlimited Infinity Comic number 23, Life of Wolverine Infinity Comic number 6, and Spider-Bot Infinity Comic number 12. Once again, if you're not reading Spider-Bot, what are you even doing with your Marvel Unlimited subscription, y'all? And in other Marvel Unlimited news, here's a thing you could be doing with your subscription. A whole bunch of new issues hitting the service this week, including... uh, Issues of Amazing Spider-Man, 78.Bay, Beyonce, Fantastic Four Anniversary Tribute, number one, very cool. Moon Knight, Sword, Shang-Chi, lots of good stuff to dive into there as well. Hell yeah. Ooh, that Darkhold Wasp issue, yes. right? I just saw Oof. that and was like, Oof. Oof. yeah, I can't wait to reread that one. Oof. Uh, over in the collections area, if you're hitting your local comic shop like Jasmine does, there's lots of carnage yeah. out there. Uh, the fourth volume of Marauders by Jerry Duggan. And I will say, I think my pick of all the collections out this week, Warlock by Jim Starlin, Gallery Edition. All right, those are the new print books, digital books, all the books this week, but it is still time for us to get into our reading club. And to do that, we are going to bring in our guest this week, which is Mr. Dan Casey. He's here to talk with us about superior foes of Spider-Man, his career, Nerdist, and so much more. Let's dive in. Also, I think uh, Brad and I are going to sit this one out and let Tucker come back for a minute. Yay, more Tucker. All right, Tucker Rooney, are you ready to get superior? I don't know why that word came out like that. Superior. (laughs) But you know what? I'm rolling with it uh, because this is a weird, wacky reading club ahead of us with the book that we've got. But our guest is going to be a hoot and a holler. We've got Mr. Dan Casey from Nerdist. Hello, Dan. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. To give us some context as we go into uh, reading Superior Foes, which is just a blast of a book. I want to hear your sort of just general like comics backstory. When did you start reading? Did you grow up going to a local comic shop? What was that all like? I did. Uh, comics have been a part of my life as far as I can remember. My father uh, grew up uh, collecting them and reading them back when they uh, cost like 10 cents, 25 cents on the cover. And we had this giant collection in our basement, all these long boxes. So it was like this little library of Alexandria for these like four color yellowed pages of just all of these incredible stories from yesteryear. And I became obsessed. I loved the action figures. I loved the comics. I loved the animated series. I loved everything to do with these incredible stories, especially the ones at Marvel. That's what I was always drawn to more because I really liked that human side of things. Like I enjoyed the fact that someone like Peter Parker had to pay rent or come up with scams to take pictures of himself to 
get paid. It may it was like, you know what? That seems like the kind of harebrained scheme that I, a child, would probably come up with at the same time. So I always enjoyed that. And every Wednesday, we would go down to our local comic book shop in Wakefield, Massachusetts, the now defunct Webhead Enterprises. And we would pick up uh, the week's new issues, then split a Reese's and a glass of milk at the kitchen table, reading our weekly haul. So it was always a very special part of my life uh, and uh, something that's just been with me uh, ever since. That's pretty cute. You, you mentioned Spider-Man. Were there other Marvel characters that you connected with that you really like started to collect? I think something that we, we talk about is people sometimes dive in and they, they get thrown into the deep end at a certain point when they first go in. Was there a deep end for you? Yeah, it was definitely X-Men comics, I think, when I was growing up, because I've always been drawn towards um, ensemble stories like i love avengers but there's just something about the x-men as well which especially like the claremont era all of these like super brightly colored ostentatious costumes and really over-the-top stories and like really complex backstories you can just like sink your teeth into like i was an only child so it was nice to uh lose myself in these fictional worlds like trying to decipher what is going on with psylocke's backstory <laughs> i have many questions probably too many for a single podcast <laughs> but it was just stuff like that and also i just remember uh, really being terrified in particular of the prospect of arcade and murder world because I was like, well, I've been to theme parks, but uh, this seems uh, much more dangerous than what I've heard. Do you remember the first time you read Superior Foes? Uh, yeah, I remember I read it in 2013. I think it was, I was, I think I might've been covering it for Nerdist or I might've just picked it up at my uh, local shop in LA, um, the uh, late great Meltdown comics. Um, and I was just, really taken with it immediately because as I as I grew older I was always uh, drawn towards these different these stories where they don't necessarily focus the superhero but you get a little slice of the other characters that comprise their world like you know another one I really enjoyed was Marvel's where you see that look into like the entire Marvel universe from a civilian's vantage point and this one you know Spider-Man has one of the greatest if not the greatest rogues galleries in all of comics but not everyone is going to be on the same caliber as like a Doc Ock or a Green Goblin. And I loved that it was just this assembly of goons. Like it's like you shook a laundry basket full of spandex and these people fell out <laughs> and they are now the stars of their own comic. And I loved how it's irreverent, but they take themselves seriously. And I loved that balance. And it just mm -hmm. immediately uh, stood out to me. I have a very fond place in my memory for it. It's warm. It's fuzzy. I can like picture gags if I close my eyes. There's wonderful pieces. So let's run down the creative team for Superior Foes of Spider-Man, written by Nick Spencer, penciled uh, for most of the run by Steve Lieber, um, who inks in himself for the most part. We've got Rich Ellis in there a little bit and some other artists. Colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, letters by Joe Caramagna, edited in part of it by Tom Brennan. Tom is a friend of mine. And so I asked Tom, you know, what was it like uh, with Steve Lieber? Because Steve, to me, is is such a, an amazing, incredible part of this book. And Tom said, Steve Lieber is a master storyteller. You give him the Vegas script and he'll turn it into a masterpiece. I love a good Steve Lieber comic. He's an unsung hero of comics. Tom then pointed me to old Stephen Wacker. 
Um, Steve was a Marvel Comics editor. He's worked on Hawkeye with Matt Fraction and David Aha and many others and, and tons of books. And Steve said, I had been a Steve Lieber fan going back to his days on Hawkman and Whiteout. Plus, he had done some awesome work on Hawkeye for my office. So I was already a fan of his storytelling and the life he added to every scene he drew. Steve's one of those artists who makes you believe that these characters could actually exist in the real world. Plus, he's legitimately funny, or his art is anyway. He's never made me laugh in person. And that was uh, that was just some love for Steve Lieber from um, some of the editors who worked on the title. I love getting that backstory as well. Uh, and like I think what uh, Wacker was saying about Steve Lieber is really comes through is there's so many delightful visual gags on each and every page. Like it's something that really rewards going. That was something I really enjoyed because I knew the story when I was going back to reread it and just seeing all these little silly background things that you might miss on your first read through. It's just, uh, it feels really vibrant and alive in a great way. Okay. Let me take us to our cast of characters. Um, Boomerang, Shocker, Overdrive, Speed Demon, and Beetle. Uh, They're listed right there before the story even begins. Dan, when you think back on this book, whether it was maybe before you reread or as you were rereading, is there like a character or a moment um, that just sort of stuck out in your head as just like emblematic of what this book was? Or is it just the feeling? Because I think this could definitely also be one of those that just just gives you a very, very specific vibe as you're reading it. And like that's the, the, the biggest takeaway of all. It's definitely the feeling, but there's one moment in particular where, you know, they have these fantastic scenes where the Sinister Six, as they're calling themselves, really trying to make that name their own. uh, They are having a team meeting in their weird little hideout. And uh, it's brought up the fact that there's only five members in the Sinister Six. And Boomerang keeps insisting that it's a good thing, because if you don't have a sixth member, you create an air of mystery. And he really wants people to be like, what if it's Dormammu? And then everyone's clowning on him for always saying it's Dormammu. Uh, And it's just that banter and the way that they always undercut each other and snipe each other or they're just not paying attention. It's that sort of like uh, well-intentioned bumbling energy that like they're really trying to be super villains, but right now they're just regular villains. Uh, And it's just, I love that vibe because it really carries out throughout the whole book. And especially as it unfolds, when you realize that uh, like Boomerang has all of these schemes within schemes that even when they blow up in his face, he's got like a plan D through Z ready to go. (laughs) I want to jump on a couple things that you just brought up. Uh, One the idea that yes, they have only have five members. And at one point through actually probably most of the book, they only have four members and that having five visible members with one being a mystery is actually a comic book trope. It's like who's behind everything and it works. It's, it's funny and it's great because it's not a thing that you usually hear in a comic that is very meta, but it, it totally works. It works really, really well um, for, for storytelling. And then, too, you mentioned Dormammu, and he brings up Dormammu. The Dormammu gag keeps coming back, and it, it like there's a dream sequence towards the end of the run where Boomerang is, is imagining marrying someone, and Dormammu is there presiding over, e- either presiding or being like his best man. It's, it's kind of vague. <laughs> 
And then he's like holding boomerang in his dream is holding a child with Dormammu's fiery head. And like, <laughs> there's a whole lot going on there yeah. that they don't even get into, but it goes back to the Steve Lieber of it all uh, of like those little visual gags coming. Oh man. It's, it's so wonderful how things come back as a, a total package. Reading it as, as 17, 18 issues, whatever it is, it really locks it in. Mm-hmm. It's a fast read too. Like if anyone who has not read it, uh, it's not dense in the way that some texts can be. It's not like you're trying to understand the Jonathan Hickman of it all, but it's like comfort food. You just like roll into the next issue and you can't wait for the next one because you want to figure out what's going to happen next to this like pack of Mr. Magoos. Are they going to get hit by the wrecking ball today or are they going to actually get away with it for once? Ryan, I'm curious just from, from your perspective, obviously you were you're at Marvel at the time. Where did this fall in like the career trajectory of Nick Spencer? Because just from a writing perspective, I feel like this is so impressive. It's probably about two or three years after he sort of got into things. Like I, he like rose to prominence a little bit with his creator own book, Morning Glories. That was really, I think, the book that everybody was talking about. Everybody was checking out. It was an image title and it was really cool. Then he came on and did some Iron Man for us. Um, he was doing some stuff for DC. It's Iron Man. Oh, and his Secret Avengers run, which is really, really fun. That's a great run of books, too. I remember him doing that. Um, he did a whole bunch of other stuff, little bits and bobs here and there. And then he's actually doing like his full Secret Avengers run at the same time as this. And that's what may, you know, spring 2013, really the the kickoff of Marvel Now and the whole Marvel Now point one business. This is now eight years ago, give or take. So yeah, he, he comes in, it feels very fully formed. He knows what he's doing right off the bat. It, it has that sort of fuel inside of it, I feel like, of like someone who's still so like eager to get after it. You know what I mean? Like this is the story he has to tell and he's, you know, not holding anything back and just kind of swinging for the fences, which I just find so admirable. The fact that this book exists is a marvel to me, you know, pun intended. <laughs> yeah. I want to dig into the, the superior part of it all because this comes out of the superior Spider-Man arc where, uh, I mean, spoilers, that's, that's what we do on the show, where Doc Ock takes over as Spider-Man. And so he, he wants to be the superior Spider-Man. And so the superior Spider-Man story ends about halfway through superior foes like that that story wraps up and spider-man goes back to the story it was telling and so we still have like a bunch of issues of superior foes after superior spider-man ends but what i found interesting was the the month that the final issue of superior foes of spider-man when that is released on sale november of 2014 it is the same month that all new captain america launches by Nick Spencer writing that that title uh, with a great variant cover featuring uh, Stephen Colbert as the Falcon. Can't forget that one. <laughs> uh, very of the time, which I love. We also had Anderson Cooper on the cover of Black Widow. Um, there's a lot happening, but uh, oh, yeah, it's it, a simpler it, time. It's is it though? There's a lot going <laughs> on. De- Death of Wolverine is happening at this time. A new Spider Woman series launches. The, the official first start of Spider-Verse, the first Spider-Verse story in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. Oh, and also at this point, we were six months away from Secret Wars. 
and like the drum was beating in in Avengers by Jonathan Hickman like the the banner at the top is in 6 months time runs out which yes you know I loved that countdown in particular I loved what he did with Avengers and I was definitely having a blast reading uh that sort of uh slow march towards uh, the dissolution of reality as we knew it that is Secret Wars is probably my all-time favorite event and so yes. and the lead up to it it is it is uh just incredible there are so many incredible moments from that just as well, like making the thing, uh, the wall, like that separates the kingdom from <laughs> like the outland full of Marvel zombies. And it's just so many delight, even just like this, like a sillier moment, like uh, Miles having an old burger in his pocket, which is the most like teenage superhero thing imaginable. <laughs> just for a visual aid for the listener, as Dan is telling those details, <laughs> the look on Ryan's face as Ryan just said, that's one of his favorite of all time. The look on Ryan's face was pure. I can't even get into this right yeah. now. <laughs> I love it so much. much. I cannot even go there. <laughs> oh, just full white outfit, King Doom, Lord mm-hmm. of all, and just destroying Thanos with like a push. Oh, mm. <laughs> Let's come back. Speaking of tasty juice, as Nick Lowe would say. Yes, Dan. (laughs) Speaking of doom and art, that's also one of my favorite uh, plot lines in Superior Foes, where you think that they're going for the uh, the long lost head of uh, Silvio Silvermane uh, living in a junkyard with a precocious young boy, but it turns out the real prize is a portrait of Doctor Doom when he accidentally had too much Latvian wine and let someone paint him unmasked and hated the result. (laughs) And it's just such an incredible switcheroo that like mm. this is this priceless thing that Boomerang was after the entire time, then hides it behind a poster for, um, oh my God, what was it? Uh, Catherine uh, Heigl movie. A Catherine Heigl romantic <laughs> comedy with Gerard Butler. Yeah, The <laughs> Ugly Truth with Catherine Heigl and uh, Gerard Butler. <laughs> just unframed. There's so many great little oh, bits God. about that. They get away with so much because it's Bullseye telling a story. And so he has Doom crying. He has Doom say to the artist, draw me like one of your French girls. And it's like, God bless us for being able to put that yeah. on a page, get that out into the world. I want whenever we see Dr. Doom again in, in, in a bigger, bigger way, I want that to be a, a like an image that goes spread around. Get it on Nerdist. Draw me like one of your French girls. That's a, a panel that, uh, like the iconic one of uh, Doom tooting the uh, conch shell, That yes. I want that one to be up there with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, It feels like there are three or four of those scenes or sequences or just moments in each issue of Superior Foes that are just like perfect little nuggets of hilarity and just like everything is so perfectly placed. The dialogue is perfect. And like, uh, obviously, we, we, we can't talk about it enough. Steve Lieber's art executing those, the, the jokes and the style, the sense of humor. The scene with the lawyer in issue number two crushed me. It made me laugh so hard of like boomerang is imagining himself throwing a boomerang and then waiting for a second. And then the boomerang comes back and chops off this guy's head (laughs) (laughs) as he's just sort of absentmindedly, you know, quote, listening to him or something like shout out to, you know, one of the best in the biz, Joe Caramani's letters, because like the lawyer asks him some stupid, weird question. Hey, what do you think that saying comes from anyway? I've never been slapped on my wrist. And then the actual balloon is like melting and you just it 
is such a creative way to get you to read the sentence, I don't know, comma, partridge, period, in a way of just like, I don't know, partridge of like in Dumb and Dumber when Jim Carrey is at the bar late in the movie and he's going insane waiting for his date to show up who's not showing up and he says i don't care or something like that it it, it just reminded me of those things it just felt like wow if you asked you know so many different people how can you illustrate how can you pull that tone out of you know written words and then to come up with just such a simple and creative solution like that. I feel like that's so emblematic of, of so many choices in this book. Similar to that as well is when later on, when they're going to assault the owl's base and you see this like incredible full page of, okay, here's the layout of the base. And inside it looks like you think it's going to be boomerang exaggerating again, because there's a room with giant murder scorpions and werewolves and ninjas and some guy with a mustache and just like every manner of like deadly horror and trick that would be in any base or any number of bases. They're all just in this random warehouse and you think it's just going to be an exaggeration, but no, they're all inside of there and he leaves them all to fight all the uh, monsters and goons by himself while he takes the elevator down to the real prize. We only get little glimpses of that, and like they're fighting the murder scorpions, or you see the the werewolves in in further panels. But I don't think we see the mustached man, who I think is a giant. I because he's yeah, like he's huge. He's, he's huge. huge, and he has nunchucks. Uh, yes. Oh uh, man, there's so much cool stuff there. The you mentioned the the head of Silvio Silvermane, who I love that this book is also so steeped in Marvel like crime lore so we have that we have tombstone we have the owl we have hammerhead and like the book does a great job of keeping lots of humor making it super absurd but also turning the screws when necessary to make these characters remind us that this is a funny book but it's also these are dangerous characters who will Mm -hmm just destroy someone and like any character can die at any moment because these characters are should and will and always be dangerous even when you know hammerhead is doing his james cagney stuff and it's like everybody is clowning on him and they're like trying not to laugh at him and he's everybody he's real weird you also are reminded that like he then murders one of his lieutenants because he was just angry with him and it's it's a it's a great balance in in a book that can have, you know, a head of an elderly crime lord that has been grafted to a, an RC car hanging out with a small child in a junkyard. Yeah, it's like the uh, the organized crime version of uh, Sid from Toy Story a little bit uh, when you finally <laughs> see him. Yeah. Um, you know, you really feel for some of these characters like uh, like Shocker when he has this really vulnerable moment with uh, Boomerang, you know, admitting that he saw through a lie that Boomerang told about the Punisher and Chameleon and uh, he promises not to tell. He's just, you know, Boomerang gasses him up and then the issue ends where you see him in the trunk of a car hurtling off a dock into the ocean. And you're like, it's played for a laugh and it is objectively funny in the moment just as a sight gag. But then the reality of it sinks in. You're like, oh, you, you betrayed this man who is relying on you and like really confiding in you. And like, you're just going on like, all right, it's just business moving on to the next one. Uh, It was a relief when he came back 
uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> but it was a relief when he came back because I genuinely thought like, oh, he's he's dead now. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of great shocker stuff throughout this series. Just playing on that. Yeah, he's kind of a joke. He wears a quilt. His powers are a little weird, but he suffers from self-esteem issues and all this other stuff. And slowly you are empathetic with, you know, a longstanding C-ish level Marvel villain and by the end, he's kind of like the one you go, yeah, good job, Shocker. Yeah, it's nice to see characters like that get a bit of a redemption arc, even when they are still committing crimes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. There's that moment where it, he says it's uh, it says total Heisenberg moment in there. Um, I think that's maybe issue four or five. It's an interesting sort of self-awareness that's happening there of like, we innately as readers are going to want to root for these characters. You know what I mean? Like that's just the nature of how we consume a story. You know what I mean? Like you're told from a certain perspective. And even if you know logically that these are the bad guys, you inevitably are going to want to end up on their side and in one way or another, which I think is just part of the, the bigger idea that's that Nick is playing with here. And it, it, it just, you keep being reminded it, of it yes in the way of they when they do something terrible but also in those ways similar to like spidey on page one or similar to you know any of the other kind of hero cameos that show up or when luke and iron fist you know burst through the wall it is just taking the kind of classic superhero comic book formula of like you know last page cliffhanger reveal or something when a you know a villain appears and it's just turning it on its head and saying to these guys this is like their equivalent you know what i mean it's power man has appeared and they have to deal with this now it's sort of for my money it's kind of like the best kind of like meta comic book that it can get you know what i mean that also i think comes up visually as well um we're like boomerangs like at a bar and his head is a donkey head for a second like he's an ass for a second you know it's just it takes advantage of the medium in in i think such a wonderful way that we forget is even possible you know like they do a good job of making you care about these characters like even even boomerang when you meet, see the fred Meyer side of him when he meets a bartender and starts to fall for her and takes her to a baseball game but you know his background as a disgraced pitcher uh, so he's wearing like this, these Groucho Marx glasses and it's just, he's just a complete embarrassment, just ruins the date because he's just so full of himself. But you're like, well, I understand you were, you, uh, this is like a traumatic experience for you that you have not processed because, uh, your super villain HMO doesn't offer therapy. <laughs> um, our producer Jasmine has mentioned that there are so many pop culture references in our discussion of this. And I think it's appropriate because there's so many pop culture references throughout this and it's something that tucker and i have talked about on the show before and dan where do you stand on comics having a lot of like timely cultural touchstones in the work i am of two minds about it if that is your sort of like go-to crutch as a storytelling tool to sort of place it in time i sort of frown a little bit at that, but like most stories aren't going to rely on that. It's, I think most stories are using them to give you a sense of place and chronology and, you know, having Boomerang say like total Heisenberg moment after he engineers this scheme. I think it works. Even if you haven't seen Breaking Bad or you're not familiar with it, it doesn't take away from the moment. There's another line that really made me laugh. 
I don't know. It's you could place the same sort of moment in another book, and it just wouldn't play as well, just because of the precedent that's so beautifully set for this. It's the whole pirate like thing that that happens with Boomerang, and I just love any. Just you could put this in any context, but like something really bad is happening to someone. And then they have the presence of mind to say out loud, this sucks um, as it's happening, <laughs> I think is so funny. And um, like to see this uh, in the lineage of like a certain very specific kind of sense of humor in Marvel Comics. And I know there's obvious precedent before this series. And, um, you know, there have been books that that have come after it that can keep carrying the torch. But it was really, really cool to see it stand up on just that alone as just like a flag bearer of like a certain feeling, a certain kind of laugh that you're going to get out of this book that you wouldn't get out of any other book. I thought it was really, really cool. I love that it's something that's just funny on its own in terms of the storytelling. But if you have been reading Marvel for a long time and you have that appreciation of the history, it just gets funnier and funnier, especially with each new character they introduce. Like when uh, Tombstone bursts through the wall to save the day uh, and issue six, there's this incredible little like text box where it's just like, hey, kids, it's Tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> Or Hydro Man. Every time they they show Hydro Man, there's like a swoosh sound effect, or there, yeah. there's some little gag there. I'm glad you brought up like that connector right there because there's a whole sequence toward the end of the series in which they add like 11 more members to the gang, and it is a tremendous array of characters, including like the Kangaroo. I think Obnoxio is in there. There's a whole host of characters. And it's sort of very fitting because this is, you know, the, the superior foes are not quite the most well-known characters. Dan, do you have favorites of the lesser known Marvel villain variety or hero? But villains are more fun to, to find. <laughs> I think one that I love just because it just makes me laugh every time I see the image is uh, I believe it's the spot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of uh, fun with portals. He's one of those characters where it's just he looks kind of objectively stupid on his face. You can do some cool stuff with him, but he doesn't get that same level of clout as, uh, you know, some of the other uh, more important characters in Spider-Man's canon. So I love seeing uh, I love seeing characters like that, uh, ones where they can have a cool utility in a very specific context. But outside of that, they're going to get beaten 99 times out of 100. I guess continuing with just some Dan Casey favorites. Are you reading anything that you're, you're really loving in particular right now, Dan? Yeah. Um, I've been going back, uh, with Hawkeye, uh, now out on Disney plus I've been going back and of course rereading the incredible, um, Matt Fraction and David Aha run, um, which I absolutely love, but also going back a little bit further and reading some old, uh, West coast Avengers. I love a good team up book and, the stuff where they go back in time in particular, it just blows my mind where I'm like, okay, what? They moved out to LA. We got a lot of stuff from WandaVision from that. And now we have uh, this these weird time travel elements as well. I love just experiencing the vast canvas of Avengers history. Um, and also been uh, going back to uh, read through the collected edition of um, Powers of X. Mm. Nice. Good choice. Nice powers. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, thanks so much. Where can fans check you out and, and see more of you talking about comics and pop culture? 
Thank you so much for having me, first of all. Um, folks, you can find me uh, on Nerdist.com each and every day, overthinking fictional worlds and especially the <laughs> Marvel Universe uh, way too much. Um, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dan Casey or on Instagram at Osteoferocious. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. All right. Once again, thank you to Dan Casey. Thanks as always to Tucker for, uh, for, for being there, being square, being oh, him. I it's like nice. that. Dan Casey, what a good dude and superior photos of Spider-Man. Holy moly. I need to re- reread that. Such a good read. So great. I will reiterate Steve friggin Lieber. Holy moly. Yeah. My God. Such a, an incredible uh, run of art on those issues. All right. That wraps it up. Uh, Brad. Hey, that's me. Thanks for being here. Thanks. That's yeah, you. that was a blast, yeah. my friends. Thank you so much. What a cool pile of books to talk about. Yeah. All right. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos and Jasmine Estrada and Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Pull List's senior manager of audio production and development. And, you know, you guys are always saying things like he's got lots of tattoos. He's a scroll. His family are scrolls. Well, you know yep. what? I'm going to give you something real that is insane. And that is the fact that in the summer of 1999, I was a writer on the Star Wars Episode One Trivial Pursuit game. That's one movie for a whole version of Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> I wrote a lot of questions about Jar Jar Banks, everyone. And I'm still recovering. I thought you were going to say that in summer of 1999, you went to Woodstock 1999 and got <laughs> thrown out during the amazing performance by Limp Bizkit. Well, that happened too. That happened too. It was yeah. a good summer. I'm Ryan. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Brad. This is Marvel. Your universe.